um, members of your church, of this great church, just returned, uh, thank God, and by his grace, here, home, safely, after uh, being led by Jerry Squires and Innovative Missions uh, on a trip uh, to Afghanistan. And they went, the sole purpose being to tell the greatest story ever told. Some of these photos, they're not professionally produced. They were taken by participants on the trip. Perhaps you've recognized them as being some of your own church family members. I'd like for you to meet one now. And so, Kyle Kroll, if you are here, can you visit? This is Kyle. Would you say hello, Kyle? Thank you, brother. And uh, Kyle, you uh, have been here at the church for how long? Uh, probably over 20 years. Over 20 years, and you're uh, married now and have six children? Uh, no. <laughs> I'm single. You're single? Yeah. And wanting to mingle? I guess you could say that. <laughs> Never hurts. I'm trying to help you. Now, you, you know Kyle's older brother, I'll bet. Do you remember Lance? who was with us for uh, such a long time and now is serving with the Southern Baptists of Texas. And so this is a great, great family. And Kyle, how many times have you been to Afghanistan? I've been one time. And uh, if the Lord permitted, would you go back? Uh, I'd go back tomorrow if I could. I'm going to give you this and just let you share your heart, which I'll bet is filled with things the likes of which we couldn't hardly relate to. I I just want to know why a guy... Were you born here in Texas? I was. Why would a native Texan want to venture uh, halfway around the world uh, into a, a somewhat challenging land? We're familiar with Afghanistan somewhat, not as you are, but somewhat. W- what did the Lord do so that you would go back? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I had a friend that went, and I was talking to Jerry Squires, and just uh, he told me some of the, uh, the need of the people there. And just uh, um, it's this group that this church fostered and, and has uh, developed a relationship with starting the summer. And uh, it's 500,000 people, and they live in very rural mountain villages on the Afghanistan-Pakistan border. And uh, there's just, uh, there's only one missionary there, um, and he works, and in, in, in without him and without the things that this church is doing, there would be no chance for these people ever to hear the good news, the name of the Jesus Christ. And uh, felt it burden on my heart to go and see what I could do. And then um, just experiencing that and just meeting these people and just, just, you know, how great and nice they are, but just how hopeless they are without knowing Jesus Christ and, and how they live in a land that's full of hate and just, you know, we don't understand. We can't understand the things that they go through. And then hearing the testimonies of the, just the believers and the missionaries and just their heart, you know, for these people. And it just, you know, it breaks me to think that without the things that we're doing and with this church, these people wouldn't have a chance. And uh, I developed some relationships over there, and uh, it's essential for me to go back to, uh, you know, um, one day be able to share why I have joy and why, why people would want to leave America to go to where they're at and what kind of love would cause somebody to do that. And that's something they don't know and they can't experience without knowing Jesus Christ. And it's just a, a testament to um, just the how God's allowed... Uh, an opportunity for people to go. And this church has been great in supporting people and supporting the cause and just, um, just you know, just the faith that it takes for those missionaries every day. And, and I saw that. That just, you know, it just amazed me to think that they live every day by faith. And, and how much more effective would we be if we live like that too? It's easy um, 
it's too easy sometimes with here, but for there, you, you know, when your life's on the line and you're dependent on Christ every day to get from where you're going, you know, it's just, uh, it just really showed a lot of things to me and showed, you know, how, how vital and essential it is to go because um, there are so many people out there that without what we're doing, without going, they would never have a chance. Now, now Kyle, you're, you're an athlete. And uh, you, you, you're a baseball player. And um, were you able to use any of your athletic uh, capacities over, over? No, I, I, this is just me. Okay. I just. Uh, we played soccer, and uh, they love soccer. And uh, I'm not, I've not played a whole lot of soccer, but it was great to play with those guys and just uh, bond and be able to, you know, um, put aside Afghanistan, American, and just play together. And, it's, and it was, that's how they develop relationships is, um, you know, we're, we're bonding, we're together. There's no difference, you know, we're all working together. And that was great. And just uh, before I left, I, I gave them some of my baseball cards, and they thought that was the coolest thing in the world. They have no idea what baseball is, and they, they were looking on the back to see if my phone number was on it so they could call me. <laughs> but uh, it was great just to... Um, just to share with those guys and just develop relationships. And, and, and you know, that was, that was essential, and that's essential to the goal for long-term is to develop relationships and develop opportunities for people to see the love of Christ in your life and just to be living proof. So Kyle used his uh, uh, soccer abilities. Limited. Limited, though they Very may be, to yeah. bond. And then we noticed Becky Bircham and lots of toothbrushes. and yes. th- What was going on there? Uh, she did an uh, excellent job. She did some dental hygiene. Uh, she did some teaching of that. And uh, they, we provided some of the dentists around here were, were generous to donate toothbrushes. And we took that to people who have never seen a toothbrush in their life mm-hmm. and taught them how to use it. And we got them toothpaste. And... Uh, it was it was awesome to see people who've lived 60 years and have never used a toothbrush to use it for the first time and uh just you know just care of their teeth and and information about you know things and we hope in the future to take some dentist over there and 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 be able to do more extensive work with them thank you Kyle blessings to you blessings to Uh, Kyle has been entrusted with the greatest story ever told about the greatest Savior who came on the greatest mission, and that is to offer us the greatest pardon for the greatest need, a sin debt we could not pay, uh, uh, so that we could inherit the greatest gift of pardon and forgiveness and adoption and entrance into heaven now and forevermore. So we are uh, blessed to have folks like Kyle and Becky, and uh, we saw Stanley, I think, also. Did we see Stan uh, in there and uh, Jerry and others? And so uh, we want to encourage you, if sharing the greatest story ever told is important to you, then you continue to come here and be built up and learn how to do it and give and serve so this church can continue to propagate the gospel. Literally, that's Afghanistan. That's not around the corner, is it? It's around the world. Now listen, just to show you how committed the church is to continue to share even more effectively the greatest story ever told, uh, we have the privilege of hearing from our executive pastor, who I'd like to invite now, Brother Chuck, about a wonderful, wonderful uh, potential addition to our church staff. Brother Chuck? I have the wonderful uh, opportunity to follow that testimony uh, about 
our mission work here at Sagemont with a recommendation. Uh, first, let me just say, Kyle, thank you for going. Becky, are you here? Becky usually sits back over here. Is Becky here tonight? No, I'm seeing no, she's not here. It is so warming to me to see so many of our young folk going on mission trips. Uh, Becky's in her 20s. Kyle, I guess you're in your 20s. And, and Matt went uh, a few months ago. And it's just so wonderful to see those who grew up in our church embrace the call and go halfway around the world to share the gospel. We are so grateful for your sensitivity to our spirit and going. And thank Kyle and Becky and Matt and our young folk for going around the world to share the gospel. Bless you. Now, I get the opportunity to follow that testimony up with a recommendation from our church family. Several months ago, uh, we voted on a team of our members to find our next associate minister of missions. And they bring a recommendation to the church. And so I hope up on the big screen a picture of Brandon Duncan will go up there. That is Brandon Duncan and his wife, Christy, and their son, Braden. Uh, they were here Sunday, and John introduced them to our church family. They, husband and wife, are graduates of Golden Gate Seminary. Uh, they have both been on extensive mission trips around the world. Uh, Brother Milton Brock, right back here, has been the one of the trustees at Golden Gate Seminary, and they have literally interviewed dozens and dozens of candidates, but Milton, with his ties to Golden Gate, asked for some of the best and the brightest, and several of the deans and the faculty put this man forward and said, he is the best of the best. And our team interviewed him, and they are unanimous in bringing a recommendation to the Sagemont Church family that he be our next associate minister of missions. And so I get the privilege of calling our church into conference to bring this recommendation to you. If you have any questions, uh, Milton is here, but he's got laryngitis, and I know that uh, uh, Bob Kreitz from that team is right over here. So if you have any questions about Brandon or his uh, family, you can ask those questions now. Are there any questions whatsoever? I see none. Do I have a motion from the church floor? I see Roland. Is that your hand back there? Roland and right over here, Brother Charles, I see your hand. And so I have a, a motion and a second. All those in favor of calling Brandon Duncan as our new associate minister of missions signify by saying aye. aye. Any objections with a nay? And our missions endeavor at Sagemont will continue to go on and upwards to the glory of God. You do an awesome job in taking the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world. I take us out of our conference now. Brother Stewart, you have it. Appreciate it, brother. Well, Brandon will be coming and serving on a team with our uh, minister of missions, Roy Gale. And uh, Roy, if I can presume upon you, I think Roy will be with Kyle at the end of the service. If you would like to go by and hear more from Kyle and about his experience in Afghanistan at our mission center uh, uh, desk right out there in the foyer. So please go by maybe before you leave and say hello to Kyle, maybe give him a hug. Thank him for representing this church and the Lord Jesus Christ in Afghanistan. I'm sorry, I forgot a very important announcement. Excuse me, Brother Stewart. Folk, uh, we had a, a, a tragic death in our church family today. Most of you know Calvin Biggs. Calvin Biggs has served in our church family for many, many years as a deacon in our church family. And Calvin is perhaps the most faithful member of Sagemont Church. Uh, most of our children, uh, many of you, were pushed in a buggy by Calvin. 
Uh, Calvin has uh, loved our children and pushed them in a buggy for years. My children were pushed by Calvin, and they're grown and married and and up there now. And, And so he's just a saint of saints, and he's gone to be with our Savior now. The the visitation will be Friday night. I have the time here. Friday night from 5 to 8 over at night day, and the service will be here at Sagemont Church Saturday morning at 10 o'clock. Just wanted to give you that heads up. Be praying for, that's the Biggs family and the Lalonde family and the Burkhalter family, and so several families of the churches are tied there. Thank you, Brother Chuck. Uh, uh, Calvin Biggs is, is home with the Lord, and that's a wonderful deal. And We heard Kyle's heart. Unless the name of Jesus is named in places and unless what he came to do uh, is uh, presented to folks and unless they're given a chance to embrace him as personal savior, you see their eternity is not secured as it is for certain with Brother Calvin Biggs. You see how important it is. It really is life and death, isn't it? That's at, at stake. Well, folks, we have been speaking in prior weeks about the character of the Bible, and uh, I've tried to make an attempt to assure you that when you read it, you're on trustworthy and reliable ground. And when you read it, you could believe what it says. So when it promises you eternal life through Christ Jesus, you can be absolutely assured of it because the Bible itself is inspired, inerrant, and very, very reliable. And I tried to prove this by speaking to you about a few Uh, points of the reliability of scriptures, one of which had to do with uh, volumes of manuscript evidence. And then we spoke about fulfilled prophecy. And then we spoke about its historical accuracy. And I want to take us a little further today and offer to you a few other criteria for the reliability of the Bible. One is, did you know the Bible was written by eyewitnesses? This is not second, third, fourth hand testimony of the story of redemption. Oh, no, no. It was written by eyewitnesses. So when you read the Bible, you are reading eyewitness accounts. Could I ask you to turn to 1 John chapter 1, verse 1? 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. I'll show you what I mean. 1 John. How many, how many Johns are there? Yeah, there's three. You got it. So this is the first of the three. First John chapter one, verse one. What was from the beginning? What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life. Look how they lent these eyewitnesses. They lent their senses to what they wrote about. This is what we beheld. This is what we saw. We were there. This wasn't, this is not rumors. We didn't read this in another book. No, the book we are writing for you is on the basis of our own firsthand sensory experience. Would you take a look also in this regard to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. 2 Peter 1, 16 makes a similar point. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. You see, that's very persuasive to me. It is in any court of law when the person on the witness stand is an eyewitness to the event. 
that is being discussed in the court of law. Uh, the biblical writers were eyewitnesses with regard to the events they recorded. In fact, the New Testament writers wrote their accounts of the life of Jesus within 30 to 45 years after they happened. That is a relatively small gap in time. So small, in fact, that there were people still very much alive when the New Testament manuscripts were written. And so if what was written about this Jesus of Nazareth by the eyewitnesses was erroneous, there was a sufficient number of people still alive to cry out foul and to say, no, he didn't do that. No, he didn't say that. No, there was no crucifixion. No, there was no resurrection. Absolutely no empty tomb. No, he didn't walk on water. No, he didn't heal the lepers. No, no, no. But there was none of that, you see. So these were eyewitnesses' account that were corroborated by the people of the day. Folks, the reliability of the Bible is supported by manuscript evidence, by fulfilled prophecy, by historical accuracy, by eyewitness accounts, and also by scientific credibility. Now, I know you have seen juxtaposed the Bible or science. But I want to show you there's absolutely nothing contrary between the two. The Bible, though it is not a textbook on science, when it touches and alludes to scientific matters, always does so with absolute precise scientific accuracy. Now, it does so in non-scientific, non-technical language. When it touches upon a scientific matter, it does so in the common parlance of the day, regular speech, but it is accurate. And so I want to share with you some of the scientific realities expressed in the Bible, again, in the everyday language of the Bible, long before science discovered them. For instance, did you know the earth is round? Yeah, it is. And so the roundness of the earth, I have to tell you, wasn't always believed in, but Isaiah knew about it. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22. Listen, it is he, God, who sits above the vault. The word vault can be translated in Hebrew, circle of the earth. No, it's not flat. Read Isaiah. Isaiah spoke about a sphere above which the creator sat. What about the hydrologic cycle? That simply means the flow, the cyclical flow of water. It's written of in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 7. It says, all the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again and again. Folks, scientists will tell you that's called the hydrologic cycle. Now, I got to tell you something. What happens when people say there's a contradiction between science and the Bible? Well, scientists simply have to catch up with the Bible because it is way ahead of things like the shape of the earth and the hydrologic cycle. How about the vast number of stars? Jeremiah thirty-three twenty-two: as the host or stars of heaven cannot be counted and the sand of the sea cannot be measured, so too I will multiply the descendants of David. 
Then there is something called the law of entropy. Do you remember reading about that one in school? And I don't understand it, but essentially means we're winding down, we're deteriorating, we're getting gray hair, we're, I mean, everything is falling apart, is what, (laughs) the law of entropy, I think that's what it means. Well, here, listen, let me read you a description of the law of entropy in Psalm 102, way back in the Psalms, verses 25 to 27. Of old... Thou didst found the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. Even they will perish, but thou dost endure. And all of them will wear out entropy like a garment, like clothing that will change them. And they will be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years will not come to an end. So the psalmist... I don't think he would have referred to these verses as the law of entropy, but that's in fact what he is describing. So you see, science has had to catch up with the Bible. What about the importance of blood? Blood is like a good thing, don't you think? Most of us aren't going to last too long without the blood that the Lord has provided us with and which circulates through our body. Blood is really, really important, and all you have to do is read Leviticus 17.11 to find that out. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. No blood, no life. Moses knew this way back in Leviticus. What about the uh, atmospheric circulation of winds? Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 6. Blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses, the wind returns. Folks, that is a description of atmospheric circulation. What about the gravitational field? Job 26.7. He stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. That's called gravitation. So, so folks, the Bible is definitely not a science textbook. It's a book about a, a human problem, sin, and a divine solution, a crucified, resurrected, ascended soon to return savior but when it touches on scientific matters it always does so with absolute accuracy and precision why it's easy the god of salvation is also the god of creation so though the message of the book is about salvation not science obviously the god of salvation was also the god of creation is going to give us the most accurate way in advance information about science and how the universe, which he made, functions. So it's the scientists who have to catch up with the Bible, not the Bible that has to be squared with science. You see, that would be, that would be absolutely backwards. In fact, let me give you some interesting illustrations about how science has had to catch up with the insights in the Bible. As recently as 1600, Doctors believed that diseases, most, were the result of there being too much blood in a person's body. You get sick when you got too much blood. As a result, they had a practice called bleeding. You know about that. And, and, and do you remember barbershop poles? Uh, I, don't th- I don't think they have them anymore. I don't know if people get haircuts anymore. But, but, but you know they had the stripes, the barbershop poles? What are the colors? Yeah, you know why? 
because the red stripe signified that you could go there to be bled. I'm telling you, in ancient times, that's what you do. You get a haircut, and they take out a court. <laughs> and yeah, and I mean, in fact, that actually happened with George Washington. He got sick, and his doctors bled our president three times. On the third time, they literally removed almost a quart of his blood. You know what happened? Yeah, he died. He died. So so, so science was way, way behind the Bible, which well in advance of the 1600s, in the Torah, the Pentateuch, the law of Moses, tells us the life of the flesh is in the blood. That's Leviticus 17, 11. So scientists had to figure out that blood is not the problem. It actually fights diseases. It repairs tissues. It promotes health. You don't want to take out a quart of that stuff for crying out loud. Take a couple of aspirin. So... Science often has to catch up with the Bible. Here's another example. In the 14th century, there was something called the Black Plague. It was terrible. It decimated almost the entire population of Europe. In fact, one in every four people died uh, during the Black Plague. The doctors and the scientists couldn't bring the plague under control, uh, but the church did. (laughs) It was the church. You know why? The church simply applied a principle unheard of in that day, but very, very... Uh, well-known in the Bible, and it was the principle of quarantine. We would think that's normal now. I have to tell you, that wasn't part of science at all. But it is part of what the Bible said. Leviticus 13, verse 46. Listen. He shall remain, the diseased guy, he shall remain unclean all the days during which he has the infection. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. It wasn't the doctors, it wasn't the scientists in Europe during the time of the Black Plague that got it under control. It was Christians, church people, applying this passage of quarantine presented way back in the book of Leviticus. People in Moses' day, this is interesting, when Leviticus was written, in fact by Moses, knew nothing about microbiology. Obviously no microscopes or anything like that. They knew nothing about germ theory, bacteria, viruses, and all that other kind of stuff. They had no idea what it was. But God did. (laughs) Why? Well, because the God of salvation is also the God of creation. And so it's God who gave Moses something to write about. It's called the principle of quarantine. And the fact that long before the microscope and microbiology and germ theory and all this kind of stuff, Moses wrote this in Leviticus. You know what that tells me? I'll tell you what it tells me. All scripture is inspired by God. That's what it tells me. Because long before real bright, intelligent, fancy PhD level scientists wowed us with all their scientific insights, good night. The God of salvation is also the God of creation told us about the rules by which his universe is to run. (laughs) One of them is, if you don't want disease to spread, quarantine the guy with the disease. He knows about infectious diseases. In the 1800s, there was a doctor in Vienna. His name was Semovis. And he was uh, a medical doctor and in charge of a hospital in Vienna, Austria, in which women expecting to give birth, pregnant women, were coming in for routine exams. And he noticed immediately after their examination, many of them were dying from 
infection. Semovis noticed a connection. He noticed that the doctors who entered the OB area, the obstetrics area, from all other areas of the hospital did so without washing their hands. They even came in directly from the morgue into the OB area. So they do an autopsy on the cadaver and then they deliver the baby. No washing of hands. So he, Semovis, made it a rule that the doctors were required to wash their hands before they went into the OB area. You know what these brilliant doctors did? They were mad. They thought, what in the world has gotten into this guy? This is the craziest thing. Don't tell me to wash my hands. I'm busy. I got work to do. But anyway, he insisted that they wash their hands. They thought the whole rule was ridiculous, but it wasn't. Women began to survive, and their babies began to be delivered healthy and well. Well, today, the medical field, because science has caught up with the Bible, washes up. (laughs) because science has figured out that that's what you do, germs and all this other kind of stuff. But thousands of years before this discovery, Moses wrote about it in Numbers chapter 19. Fairly lengthy passage, but let me read it to you. Numbers 19 verses 14 to 19. Listen, this is the law when a man dies in a tent. Everyone who comes into the tent and everyone who is in the tent shall be unclean for seven days. And every open vessel which has no covering tied down on it shall be unclean. Also, anyone who in the open field touches one who has been slain with a sword or who has died naturally or a human bone or a grave shall be unclean for seven days. Then for the unclean person, they shall take some of the ashes of the burnt purification from sin and flowing water shall be added to them in a vessel. And a clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in the water and sprinkle it on the tent and on all the furnishings and on all the persons who were there and on the one who touched the bone or the one slain or the one dying naturally or the grave. Then the clean person shall sprinkle on the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day and on the seventh day he shall purify him from all uncleanness and he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and shall be clean by evening long before medical science knew about this God inspired Moses to teach us about the principles of quarantine and washing with water and changing of clothes and they did it so as to allow sufficient time interval for what we know today it takes for bacteria to die remember it said seven days seven days science caught up with it and tells us now it takes about seven days for bacteria to die that's why when you get some you don't feel so good you got the colds the sniffles you know you got tightness in the chest you go to the doctor you say well, i don't know if this will help you i'll give you an antibiotic but it's your call i mean you take it it might help you but you're going to get better in seven days anyway Well, man, I could have told you that. Dr. Moses wrote about it (laughs) centuries ago. Don't you see? This is an evidence, don't you see, of the inspiration of the Scripture. These principles are stated by Moses way back in the Pentateuch. How did he know all this stuff? Because of what we shared some weeks ago, 2 Timothy, all Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament is inspired by God. Moses didn't inspire it. 
Scripture was breathed out by God through Moses, written down so that you and I read it and rejoice in it and live better today, for crying out loud, long before science and medical schools and all this other kind of stuff. Moses was raised and educated in what country? Do you remember? Yeah, he was raised and educated, the finest education available in Egypt. Egypt at the time of Moses was the world's leader in medical knowledge. In fact, the ancient Egyptians were considered to be nigh unto brilliant in the area of medicine. Archaeologists found a medical book. They found it in 1855, now known as Papyrus Ebers, which it turns out is a comprehensive medical book containing virtually all the medical information accumulated by the brilliant ancient Egyptians in the time in which Moses lived. Now, some of the information contained in it is is rather interesting. For instance, here's some direct quotes. To prevent the hair from turning gray, too late, you, <laughs> you anoint your head with the blood of a black cat boiled in oil or with the fat of a rattlesnake. This is the finest medicine by the most brilliant practitioners of medicine in the day. Here's some other stuff. For baldness, apply a mixture of six fats, namely those of the snake, to strengthen it. Anoint with the tooth of a donkey crushed in honey. Other remedies uh, that are contained in papyrus ebers include donkey's dung, lizard's blood, swine's teeth, rotten meat, moisture from pig's ears, and my favorite, and I'm sure yours, fly excretion. Now, folks, I got to tell you what is so, so profound about all this. This weird, unusual stuff, which not any thinking person in here would apply, is from the most brilliant medical practitioners of the day, the Egyptians, under whom Moses himself was educated. And yet, we don't find a, one of these unusual remedies written down and advanced by Moses in any of the books of the Bible, which he, Moses, though educated here, wrote. Why? Because all scripture is inspired not by the Egyptian doctors and American scientists and smart people. All scripture is inspired by God. If anyone was to be influenced and give us in the book of Leviticus fly excretion stuff, it would have been Moses, but it's nothing like this. It's now scientifically verifiable principles like quarantine and aseptic technique and those kinds of things to control the spread of disease. How about this one? We take for granted that the earth is suspended in space hanging from nothing. We just, we don't, that doesn't wow us today. We think that's just... That's just the way it is. But the ancient Egyptians believed and taught that the earth was supported by five marble pillars. The Greeks, these are some pretty smart guys too, right? The Greeks. The Greeks believed that the earth rested on the shoulder of the god Atlas. The Hindus, the Hindus believed that the earth rested on the backs of elephants and that when the elephants shook that's called an earthquake and the elephants rested on the back of a huge turtle and the huge turtle rested on a coiled serpent 
And the coiled serpent rested in the midst of some cosmic sea. This is how they explained the earth and the universe. You know, it's man's best attempt, so to speak. We laugh at it. But I mean, they were making an attempt to make sense out of the world in which they live. But Job said, in Job 26, perhaps the earliest book of the Bible, Job said, he, the creator, stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth not on the back of a turtle or atlas. He hangs the earth, Job said, on nothing. Now, I want to know what Ivy League, Harvard University School of Science Job went to. None of those highfalutin, highbrow, waste-your-money-and-time schools. How did Job get this? All Scripture, book of Job, Scripture, all Scripture is inspired by God. He didn't get it by sitting around thinking at all. I've got to tell you, the Hindus were smart. They thought they came up with the elephant, the tortoise, the coiled serpent, the whole thing, you know, marble pillars, you know, whatever. Job said, oh, here's the deal. God told me the earth hangs on Zippo, nothing. He did it. Well, folks, I got to tell you, that was a rather radical thought. Did you know that until just about a few hundred years ago? But Job knew it centuries and centuries and centuries ago because all scripture is inspired by God. Don't you see when you read the Bible, don't let anyone shake your confidence and faith in it. They know not of what they talk. Scientific credibility. Nobody believed the earth was round. Did you know that until around 1492? You know what happened then? Remember that guy, Columbus? Sailed the ocean blue. Few people thought the earth was round. In fact, people said, Columbus, you are going to fall off. You're going to just sail right off the end of the earth. They thought the thing was flat. They had no idea. But 700 years, even before the time of the Lord's incarnation, before Christ, Isaiah said in chapter 40, verse 22, which I read earlier, God sits on the circle of the earth. And the word circle in Hebrew means globe or sphere. And we didn't wise up and catch up with this until, uh, you know, 1492. But the God of salvation, who's the God of a creation, knew about it and inspired his biblical writers, namely Isaiah, to tell us about it in advance. In 150 BC, there was an astronomer named Hipparchus. He believed he had counted all the stars in the sky and he came up with 1,022 stars. Inflation. And that number, 1,022, was used in every major then existing uh, existent university of the world for 250 years after this astronomer. But then a guy named Ptolemy, you heard of him? Ptolemy is how you spell his name. Ptolemy. He came along and he said, no, the guy, that guy is wrong. I found four more. <laughs> so, so he increased the number of stars out there from 1,022, this is true, to 1,026. And that number held and was taught in major universities of the world for 1,300 years after the time of Ptolemy. 1,300 years. That's the best science could come up with. 
Then a guy named Galileo, you remember him? He invented the telescope. Well, that helped a lot. He looked through the telescope and he said, holy moly. There's like tons of stars out there. And so we know now because of the telescope that there are like billions and billions of stars. And not only that, they're in these galaxies and there's a ton. There's innumerable numbers of even galaxies. So, so, so the telescope has helped us know that. But what did the Bible say? long before any of these fancy astronomers were born. Jeremiah thirty-three twenty-two, As the stars of heaven cannot be counted, and the sand of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the descendants of David. Thank God for good scientists. Now they've helped us to view the microscopic world, and they've helped us to view the world you look see through a telescope, you know. (laughs) But above all this stuff (laughs) stands, sits the God of the Bible who shakes his head lovingly, patiently, compassionately and says, when are you going to get it? What, what, when are you going to realize I'm here? <laughs> I always was, I always will be. <laughs> when are you going to realize you are not self-generated? You didn't make you, <laughs> big shot. You're created. I wonder if God says, when are you people going to realize that I am your creator and, and I want to create new life in you too? You're dead, though you live, (laughs) apart from the giver of eternal life. So God does all these things not to impress us with numbers and facts and figures. I think it's to impress us with his bigness in our smallness. And to move us into right relationship with God where we stop telling him what to do. And instead we bow before him, we said, oh God, how great thou art. Oh Lord, my God, when I an awesome wonder, consider all the universe displayed. (gasps) So folks, the Bible is reliable. Uh, The Bible is the last will and testament of the Lord Jesus Christ. I read it, you read it. He left some stuff to you and I, his heirs. (laughs) He says, you will inherit heaven. And I believe it as much as I believe we're here now. Why? Because the Bible told me so. And I have ample manuscript evidence. I have a record of fulfilled prophecy. I have historical evidence. Factual accuracy. I have eyewitness accounts. And I have precise scientific credibility. Just in case my heart isn't speaking loud enough. (laughs) About the authenticity and sufficiency and inerrancy and inspiration and authority of the Bible. I have all these collateral things to tell me. Don't let anybody rob, diminish, compromise your confidence 
in the Word of God contained in 66 books of canonical, inerrant, nothing wrong with them, lots wrong with you, Scripture. (laughs) Well, listen, uh, Lord willing, what we'll do next week. Did you know next week we meet on Tuesday? Uh, Wednesday on Tuesday. It's kind of a kind of an ancient tradition here at Sagemont Church during Turkey Week. So we're going to be here. And if you're able, I, I surely hope you can make it. Because next week, um, we want to present to you, uh, I think, I hope, a helpful message on the translations of the Bible. I'm trying to make a case for the reliability of the Bible. But then you might be saying, okay, fine. Which Bible? Which translation? King James, New King James, New American Standard, which is it? So next week, I want to help you to see how did we get the translations and are there good ones and bad ones or are there gooder ones than some? Uh, What's the deal? But because it's a tough topic and uh, I, I don't have much expertise on that one, I'm inviting a guest speaker next week and I'll introduce him to you and I know this little brat well, because he's my son. And uh, he, he's, uh, he, he has studied this topic when he was in seminary, and I asked him to present on it in my last church, and I just could not do it better. He is, uh, uh, has a good measure of expertise uh, on the subject and be very helpful to you in case you're wondering, well, I want to buy a translation of the Bible, which is which would be good for me. Uh, he'll be able, I think, uh, I, hope, I hope, in a balanced and uh, inoffensive way uh, uh, to talk to you about the translations. But if he, if he is offensive, just, just remember that he's also his mother's son. <laughs> Very important. Hey, takes two to tango. And uh, we learned that in Genesis long before the scientists told us about that stuff. Okay. So that'll be next weekend. I surely, surely hope you can make it. And you know what I really hope? I hope that if you're a Christian, I hope you go out with head up and shoulders back, filled with the joy of your salvation, which is assured in the scriptures, (laughs) the very word of God. And I hope you're just waiting with great anticipation (laughs) uh, for the return of the Lord Jesus. Uh, That's also assured in the scriptures. And I hope, I just hope, you're not letting this world get you down. It really could. Because what's also assured in the scriptures is that God will straighten out what's crooked. He will fix what's broken. We ain't getting it done. He will. <laughs> and he shall wipe away every tear from our eyes. We cry. It's okay. We, we hurt here. It hurts here. But, but it's not going to be that way for, forever. There's not going to be... And he did. We're, we're touched and hurt by uh, the passing of Brother Calvin Biggs. We're not sorry for him. Oh, heavens, no. The Lord Jesus is pushing him around now. This is wonderful. But, and, but we, we, his family in particular, who, who love him and honor him for such good reason, of course, they miss him. Well, that's not going to be forever. Missing and grieving and sense of loss and someone not there uh, Thanksgiving, you know what I mean? It, we, we, it's going to be all different. So just hang in there, my fellow Christians. Because the Bible uh, told me this present affliction is just kind of, it's going, in the grand scheme of things, it's just nothing. 
in the grand, in terms of eternity. It's nothing, it's nothing, nothing. So smile, <laughs> because your, your future is really, really bright. Really, really, really bright. Smile. Uh, you're forgiven. You're adopted. You have a pardon. Uh, you're not at enmity with the Creator uh, anymore. He loves you. He's your shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Oh, man, that ought to fill you up with joy and make you happy and all the rest and give you confidence that the shepherd will take good care of you. So just hang in there, fellow Christians. And look longingly for the return. Of course, that's the next great event. The return of the Lord Jesus. Like a thief in the night. Unannounced. Unannounced. But sure as could be. Because the Bible told me so. And it is as, as sure as could be. And, and see, here's the thing. If you're not a Christian, don't you see what a desperate situation you're in? Don't you see what you're missing? I, I can't tell you smile, head up, shoulders back. Rejoice, your future is bright. You're in a very, very critical situation. This man who you may not know, Calvin Biggs, we know where he is, as our pastor so wonderfully says. Nobody's lost if you know where to find them. Well, he loved his family enough to give them assurance where they can find him. His address is called H-E-A-V-E-N. Look him up. But if you're a little uncertain about what would happen to you, not if, but when you pass, I wish you would stick around at the end of the service and give us a chance <laughs> to help you to learn how you could connect with the Lord Jesus Christ. You could do so tonight. And then we can send you out of this place also. Head up, shoulders back. So well, <laughs> smile on your face. And looking forward to a bright future. So, so stick around and talk to us at the end of the service. Meanwhile, let's stand up together. And I wonder, John Mark, could you come and... Oh, great. How great they are. John Mark will, will lead us because he does so much better, obviously. Listen, pray for John Mark's mother, uh, um, who he loves and wishes he could be with now. She fell and broke her hip. Has some uh, series of medical problems, and they're very close family, so other siblings are on their way. But I know he wishes he could be with her. We're glad he's with us at present. So the least we could do is remember to pray for his mom. She's in Ohio. Thank you. Let's sing this great hymn together. Let's sing. Oh, Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all. The worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars. I hear the rolling thunder. Thy power throughout the universe display. Come on, sing it out. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to Thee. How great Thou art, how great Thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to Thee. How great Thou art, how great Thou art. Amen. Amen. Good night.
Have a wonderful rest of the week.